Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I want to talk about Virginia, Virginia Satir, Virginia Satir, or as those around her knew her as Ginny, Ginny Satir. Uh, I'll never forget the first time I saw one of Satir's videos. It was when I was in grad school in 1995, and at first, it's just unforgettable seeing her videos. At first, I remember just being completely shocked. Oh, by the way, if, if you don't know who Satir is, she is one of the most famous family therapists of all time. And if you're in my field, you absolutely know about her. And if you aren't, then I'm guessing you don't. But um, I think she's a fascinating character, probably the most fascinating therapist to have lived during her time. And even if you're not a therapist, I'm guessing this will be interesting on some level. But anyway, so in graduate school to become a therapist, I remember watching one of Satir's videos. And at first, I remember just being shocked by it. The way she is as a therapist is very different than anything I'd ever seen before. She touches people. She moves them around. She gets in their face in this super nice, nurturing way. She's not yelling at people, but she's just like in this very intense way, um, just getting right up in people's business and just talking at them and getting them to say things that they would never say normally. And so at first I was just shocked. I was like, what am I looking at? This isn't, this is like crazy town. And then over time watching, you know, that first video, I slowly completely fell in love with her. She has an amazing approach and she's truly inspirational as a family therapist I, I still show her videos as a professor of family therapy because of a lot of reasons. One, every, every family therapist needs to know about Virginia Satir and, and her approach. But more importantly, I think it just shows that therapy can be a lot of different things. You know, we, we tend to think of therapy as just being this very controlled atmosphere where you sit in an office one-on-one you're in kind of, you know, the client is on a on a cushiony chair or couch and the therapist is in some kind of mid-50s style um, chair of some kind. You know, in the movies, they always have the exact same chair that therapists sit in. And uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it, it's it's a, they're often knockoffs of a famous 50s design. Uh, I actually bought one of those chairs once at a vintage shop in Fremont, Seattle. And when I brought it home, uh, at first in the store, I just thought it was amazing. And then over time, I realized that the chair actually wasn't that comfortable and I stopped using it. Plus, it was just mammoth and, and heavy and squeaked a lot. But anyway, you know, that's normally what you see, right? And, and that's actually a, a lot of times what therapy is. But what Satir shows us, she showed us all the way back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, that therapy can be powerful and often it's more powerful when you do other things besides sit in a chair and talk. She showed us that as a therapist, you can be spontaneous in the moment. You can react very spontaneously. She showed us that therapy can be transformational. She showed us that she can connect very quickly. I mean, her sessions wouldn't really have a ramp-up phase. Her Within two minutes, she was going at 
material that most therapists would wait, you know, 10 dozens of sessions to get to because she just had this way of just going right for the gusto, you know. Now, some I do have some complaints about her approach that I'll get into much later, but but so I'm not going to say that it's not without its critique, but I will say that overall I find her videos to be inspirational and a and a good model to follow in some ways. And and it's true for many other therapists, particularly family therapists. Now, some people in my field will say no therapist should ever act like Virginia Satir because of the things she did. And I'll get into more of that later. You can actually watch her videos on YouTube. She has several who I don't know who's I think psychotherapy net uh, psychotherapy videos net or whatever that organization is. They have posted some clips of her videos. I have access to, you know, dozens of full length videos that YouTube doesn't have. But but you can actually just go on YouTube, just just type in Virginia Satir. Her last name is S A T I R. S A T I R Satir. And you can watch her operate. You can also watch some of her lectures. And you really have to watch her to know her. You really have to see her in action. There's no way to describe. There's really no way to describe therapy in general, but there's no way to describe particularly her unless you see it. And so today, that's what I want to do. I'm going to do a deep dive on Virginia Satir and her therapy model. I'm going to do my typical kind of progression here. I'm going to do a deep dive on the history, on her life. She, she lived a very interesting life and, you know, had a very important role in the development of our field. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the model as I go through the history because I think it's important. And then I'm going to pause it and then I'm just going to have the rest of it be for patrons. So if you're listening to this on the non-patron feed, on the regular feed, then this will end after the history. But I th- I'm guessing according to my notes, I probably have a good hour to two hours of history anyway. So uh, so anyway, uh, history if it's for everyone. Model is for patrons. Okay, so let's go into the history here. Uh, well, first, let's introduce the podcast. How about that? This is the podcast called Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor I'm a marriage and family therapist in Seattle, and I'm also a professor in a marriage and family therapy program. So the history of Virginia Satir, I suppose we could start when she was born in 1916, 1916. So if she were alive today, she would be 102 this year. She was born in Nielsville, Wisconsin. Not sure where Nielsville is. I think it's a small town. She was the eldest of five children in Wisconsin, and she was born into a farming family. Her parents were Oscar and Minnie Pagenkopf, Pagenkopf, German, of German descent. There's a lot of people of German descent in the Midwest, and she is one of those people. Um, they Both of her parents came from very large families, and I've actually learned from doing my own genealogy that most families of this time were farmers and you needed a lot of labor. And so a lot of these families had lots of kids. So it's not unusual to see that. So so she grew up as the oldest of five children on a farm in Wisconsin. And she said that they were working class. They struggled for money. She said 
you know, she, she reflected on her childhood a little bit in some of her interviews and some of her writings. And she said she was thankful she was able to learn the importance of being honest from her father. Apparently her father instilled her uh, with the value of honesty. I think that that value of honesty carried over into her model because she was really big on congruence and being truthful with people and communication and families. Also, she apparently uh, resented her father because he was an alcoholic. According to Satir, her father drank because he felt cheated out of a formal education and because he had to become a farmer. So he, he always wanted to have an education, work as a professional of some sort, and didn't like the fact that he had to settle for being a farmer. And, and so he apparently drank a lot to cope with that. And both of her parents valued education a lot. So both her mother and her father valued educating their children. Okay, skipping forward to 1919 when she was age three. She was a precocious child. She taught herself how to read. She famously read every book in her small school library by the age of five. She recalled that she wanted to become a detective when she was a child Particularly, she wanted to become a detective who investigates parents, which is an, an interesting early profession <laughs> to want to have, which, of course, in some ways, that's what she did do with the rest of her life as a family therapist, is investigate parents. Skipping forward to 1921, early, early 20th century, she's five years old, and she contracted or came down with appendicitis, very painful. And But she didn't go to the hospital because her mother was a Christian scientist. Her family was a Christian scientist, uh, I think, but at least her mother was a you know, very devout Christian scientist. And a part of, for many of these people, their belief is that they don't, they don't go to physicians. And so the mother refused to take Virginia to a physician. And as a consequence, her appendicitis got worse and her appendix ruptured which must have been extremely painful and scary for the family. And her father stepped in and overruled her mother and took her to the hospital. And luckily, the physicians in the hospital were able to save her life. But she was extremely ill and damaged by the, um, by the you know, event, and she had to stay in the hospital for several months. Can you imagine that? Several months in the hospital, age five. And... I also read that she was a she called herself a sickly child, so maybe it's because of that early event. So skipping forward to 1929, the Great Depression, age 13, the family moved to Milwaukee, a big city, so that Virginia could attend a better high school. And she wrote about her experience in this high school about a a geometry teacher who inspired her. So this was an important figure, perhaps, in her development of her later career, because her early career was she was a teacher herself. Again, it was the Great Depression, so she had to help her family by working. And she also tried to graduate high school early so she could start working for and, and earning money so the family didn't have to depend on um, you know themselves. So skipping forward to 1932, age 16, or actually just before her 16th birthday, she graduated from high school. 
So she pushed herself to graduate from high school when she was 15 years old, which is impressive. Right after college, she started, or right after high school, she started college at Milwaukee State Teachers College to become a teacher. It's now the University of Wisconsin. Um, I've been to Milwaukee. It's a nice town. Shout out to Milwaukee deserving listeners. To pay for her education, she worked for a department store while she went to Milwaukee State Teachers College, now University of Wisconsin. She also worked as a babysitter during this time, probably because she was the eldest of five children and was used to taking care of her younger siblings. She also worked at a community center while she was in college that was geared towards African Americans in Milwaukee. This exposed her for the very first time to the reality of racism in this country. Before this point in her small town growing up on the farm, she apparently hadn't met any African Americans. And she had this quote where she says, I had not met any black people where I was. I didn't know them from anything, unquote. Skipping forward to age 20, 1936, she graduates from the Milwaukee State Teachers College with a bachelor's degree in education, and she apparently graduated third in her class. Now, I don't know how many people were in her class, but I'm guessing it was a sizable number, and so she was a smart cookie and a hardworking student to graduate third in her class. After graduating, graduating with her bachelor's in, at the age of 20, she worked as a teacher for six years. And during this time, she would visit the family homes to see if there was anything else she could do to help. She really cared about her students and would actually go to the students' families' homes. And this was part of her emerging understanding of, of what would later become her family therapy model. After graduating with her bachelor's, she started graduate school to get her master's at Northwestern University. All right, skipping forward to age 25. In 1941, she met Gordon Russell at a train station. He was a soldier on leave from World War II, I think. And they got married uh, later or soon after that. So Gordon Russell, she married Gordon Russell, who was a soldier in World War II. It's very common for, from what I understand, for soldiers to marry people under these circumstances. You know, you're leaving for war and you just feel like you need to connect with someone. And, and, and um, you know, um, I think a lot of marriages happened with these brief encounters with soldiers at the time, or at least that's, you know, I've heard stories of such. Anyway, uh, while he was... Uh, in, you know, fighting in World War II. I don't know what he did in World War II, but while he was out there, uh, she she was pregnant from him, and she, and she had an ectopic preg- pregnancy that had a lot of complications, and the she lost the fetus, and she needed to have a hysterectomy. Apparently, so she she had a hysterectomy at the age of you know in her late late or mid twenties before she had any other kids. Skipping forward to 1943, again, still during World War II, age 27, she completed the master's program courses after seven years of being in in the graduate school. Um, And remember, she's working this whole time, so she's probably taking classes as, you know, when she could. 
but she didn't get her master's until five years later because she needed to complete her thesis. Any of you graduate students out there who have worked on a thesis or a dissertation know how that feels to finish all your courses and then to have a, you know, a, a lot of time after that to get your uh, full degree, you know, all but dissertation people, ABD people. A- apparently she, during her master's degree, she got D's in graduate school. So remember, she's always been a great student. She was a precocious child and she graduated with her bachelor's degree third in her class. But here she goes to the master's, her master's program, and suddenly she's getting all these bad grades. And later she would speculate that she was being discriminated against because she was a married woman who was in college. And the professors were, I'm guessing, all men, if, if not the majority um, men, if not all men. And she speculated that she was being discriminated against and therefore being graded harshly. I don't doubt this at all. I mean, 1943, I mean, you know, the gender politics are, are bad now. Imagine how bad they were back then. And so, uh, so anyway, 1945, World War II ends and her husband lived through it and returned home. 1948, at the age of 32, she completed her thesis and got her master's degree from Northwestern University in Chicago, and she started her private practice. But at first, she just worked with individuals because, of course, that was the standard and to some extent still is. So she, so at the age of 32, she got her master's and she started working as a counselor. Back then, they called them social workers, I believe, because if you weren't a psychologist or psychiatrist, you were a social worker. They didn't have the counseling or therapy professions as they do now. 1949, at the age of 33, she got divorced after being married for eight years. According to her, they apparently spent too much time away from each other during the war, and when he returned from the war, they really struggled and held on for another four years and then finally got divorced. 1951, age 35, she married her second husband, Norman Satir. And that's where we get her name from, because originally she was Virginia Pagankopf. Then she was Virginia Rogers. That would have been interesting if her name was Rogers, another Rogers. And then she became Virginia Satir at the age of 35. She soon adopted two girls, age 10 and 11, These were girls she was working with at the Chicago Home for Girls. She was a therapist there. And these two girls, or one of the girls was at the Home for Girls, and uh, but they were biological sisters, and they came from an abusive home. And she said that the children actually asked her to adopt them, which I can see. Because if you see videos of Virginia Satir, if I was a 10-year-old kid and I was in an abusive home and I met Virginia Satir, I would want Virginia to be my mom too. <laughs> and this is actually an interesting thing because it's a, it's a common family therapist counter-transference that people have, particularly early career, where, just as Virginia was at this time, where therapists will work with a, will really connect with a particular family or a particular kid or a particular you know group of siblings, and have this super compulsion to adopt the children, and it's this frequent conversation I have with supervisees around you can't save the world, you're going to have that feeling 
all the time. And if you adopted all the kids you have that feeling for, you'll have 500 children by the end of your career. So you just have to do what you can as a therapist, which is a lot, but it's not necessarily going to fix the problem because they're suffering from a lot of things that are really just out of your control and just out of the jurisdiction of family therapy. And of course you care and of course you, you want to save them, but your professional and your own, just your life limitations just kind of prevent you from being able to do that. So it's interesting that Virginia Satir, I'm guessing, had the same countertransference and actually went for it and actually adopted the kids. Now, of course, she had a hysterectomy and and therefore couldn't have kids. So adoption, if she wanted kids, was probably, you know, one of the only ways she could get kids. And so, you know, I guess it all made sense from, from that angle. So she also had an interview. There's an interview with her where she talks about this. And so I'll read her words here. When my children first came, they regarded food as the chief vehicle of love. In those days, $500 a month for groceries was a whole lot. Even though there was all this food in the house, I would find food cached in many in many places, they would hide food in many places. I just kept buying the food. It took about three months before they figured out that the food was not going to disappear. It was sort of hard to live through, but I finally got all the, all that straightened out. That is one of the things that brought me to work with families. You see, I started my work with families whose members no one else wanted to work with. I knew that being able to change and grow had to do with how people felt about themselves. Of course, back then, I had not developed the word self-esteem. That was a fancy word I learned later, unquote. Okay. So kind of by the way that, uh, you know, if, if you followed that quote, she has a, a kind of almost free associative way of talking which I find to be a little difficult when I watch her video uh, taped led, uh, or filmed lectures. She, she tends to speak off the cuff. And, and I'm hanging on every word, but sometimes I get a little lost. Like, wait, how did we get here? And you could kind of see that in this. Um, I mean, a little bit, not, not a lot, but <laughs> anyway. 1951, age 35, she reportedly met with her first family client. So this is after three years of practice. I read somewhere that um, she didn't work with families right away as a therapist. Um, It took a couple years, two or three years into her practice where she started actually working with families. This is very revolutionary. 1951, 51, 1951, just like so long ago. This is, she was an extreme early adopter of this notion of family therapy. She probably knew about others who had done this. There were a few vocal people who were writing about this and promoting it, but not many and not a loud voice either. You know, it was a, it was a quiet voice among People we all know now today, but people didn't necessarily know of them back then. So she very quickly saw the power of that, again, because she came from a family. She was the oldest um, child of, of five. 
she you know saw her own family she was probably parentified a little bit because her dad drank she was a teacher and worked with kids and then would work with their and go to the homes of the families and so you know it was all kind of building up to this moment where she saw her first family and i i'm so curious to 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 know what that first session was like with Virginia Satir because she had such a such a weird approach later or such a distinctive different approach that we see in her later videos and i i just wonder if she was like that when she started out i don't know so after working with families now so at this point she you know before this moment she wasn't a family therapist she was just a regular quote unquote social worker and then she sees her first family and boom she just immediately sees the usefulness of it and she very quickly takes to it and starts to really focus on it 1953 age 37 she she started working at the Illinois Psychiatric Institute and she as a therapist but she also worked as a teacher because remember she was trained as a teacher and she really took to training and one of her students so she would teach family therapy techniques at this institute as well as being a therapist and one of her teachers was actually Ivan Naj I did an episode on Naj recently and it's interesting that Naj actually came to this institute or was around and actually took at least one class from Virginia Satir which again, I just it just find it in, so interesting. I just love to be a fly in the wall as Naj walks into Satir's class and gets taught. It's just amazing to think about. He uh, would have been four years younger than her. He would have been like thirty three ish, and she was thirty seven. So at this point, she's teaching. She's developing her own ideas about family therapy. And I'm guessing she was also reading a lot of stuff from a lot of the other pioneers by this point. Because if she's teaching it, I just have to imagine that she's well aware of the other figures in family therapy. People like John Bell, Nathan Ackerman, Christian Middlefort, Theodore Lids, Lyman Wynn, Murray Bowen, Carl Whitaker, Gregory Bateson. And I think I read somewhere that she also was into Harry Stack, Harry Stack Sullivan at this time, which I find to be great because I like him as well. Okay, so skipping forward to 1957, she's 41 years old now, and she gets divorced again after being married to Mr. Satir for six years. At the end of her life, she talked about this, her divorces in an interview, she said, I have, of, I have often thought, had there been someone like me around, something might have been able to, something might have been able to be done. <laughs> so that's a weird sense. Anyway, so she's like, uh, I, I've often thought if someone was like me, uh, maybe I, marriage would have been good for me. Then <laughs> she goes on to say, I also think I don't see how I could have done what I've done in the world had I been married. I've been on the verge of marriage many times, but I said no, because I, because I wanted to roam the globe. I said no to marriage because I wanted to roam the globe. So this is so interesting because what it kind of is a window into is her personal life is that if she said, if she was on the verge of marriage many times, that means she dated a lot of dudes <laughs> or people. It, it, it's just interesting to think about. Virginia Satir after her, you know, in her 40s, after being divorced twice, she's just like, ah, I'm just going to date now. 
And then she's like, oh, maybe I should marry this person. And then, you know, nah, I, I want to roam the globe. I want to educate. I want to, I don't, I don't get time for this. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to go my own way as they <laughs> say. All right. 1958, age 42. Don Jackson, the famous Don Jackson, Jackson invited her to join him in California to study family therapy. Apparently, Virginia Satir was very good at networking with other professionals because at this point, again, she's not famous and she's basically just kind of starting out in her career and and she basically has just started doing family therapy and she basically just started teaching it. And somehow Don Jackson knew about her and I'm guessing it was because Satir, what, like, Satir apparently has been, is famously good at, at networking and communicating with other professionals and so... I'm guessing somehow they connected and, and Don Jackson liked her and thought she would be a great asset to his, his work. So he invited her out and, you know, she's divorced now so she can go anywhere she wants. And so she moved to California to be with what would eventually be called the Mental Research Institute or MRI. In family therapy, this institute is probably the most famous family therapy center and uh, so there's that. Um, Don Jackson had recently received financial backing to study schizophrenia and the family. So in the, if you don't know this, a lot of family, early family therapy studies and efforts and funding happened in the 1950s as a result of people and foundations and the government paying psychiatrists and other people like Virginia Satir to study schizophrenia and to figure out why it was happening, you know? And there were some people that started to think, well, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a psychoanalytic thing. Maybe it's a behaviorism thing. Maybe it's this and that. And then other people thought, well, maybe it's the family. Maybe the family is, is the cause of this, of the schizophrenia. Now we look back on that now and we realize the family is not the cause of schizophrenia. The family can exacerbate the symptoms for sure, but we now know that it's not. But but at the beginning they 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 wanted to see if it was and and they had some early hypotheses about about it. And what it did it is it gave the field of family therapy this jump start because it was funding for research and for publications and for people to really figure this stuff out and to develop family therapy models. Murray Bowen also was got his start in this way in that uh, in some ways in that he was in these, you know, studies for schizophrenia and the family. So Don Jackson had got some money, starts this mental research institute in Palo Alto asks Virginia Satir to join him. And the original staff consisted of just Don Jackson, Virginia Satir, and Jules Riskin, along with a secretary. So three therapists, Don Jackson, Virginia Satir, and Jules Riskin uh, were all that was of the Mental Research Institute in Palo Alto. It later became quite bigger. And so, and again, the original purpose when it first got off the ground, Mental Research Institute was to research how family relationships affected mental health in general and specifically schizophrenia. All right, well, let's take a break. When we get back, we'll continue with the history. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron, do so now. Go to patreon.com. Become a patron of the podcast. Do it. 
Okay, so 1962, getting up to the British Invasion, Beatles, The Stones, uh, Moody Blues, who else? Um, uh, Virginia is now, or Ginny is now age 46 in the early 60s. She was practicing as a therapist, and she was also informally teaching other therapists about family therapy during her off hours, often late in the evenings um, at the Mental Research Institute. And in 1962, so MRI has been around for, Mental Research Institute has been around for about four years, and it received a huge grant from the National Institute of Mental Health to begin the first formal family therapy training program ever offered. And they were funded for five years, and Satir was named the training director. So in a way, Satir was the very first family therapy teacher, <laughs> which uh, is, is great. So um, that's 1962. I'm guessing that they Don Jackson, Satir, were so good at networking and so good at grant writing maybe and so good at uh, you know coming up with ideas that um, the National Institute of Mental Health actually said yeah because there were, there were a number of other centers that were probably vying for that funding and I, I mean I don't know the history but that's just usually how things go anyway 19, 1964 age 48 Virginia is 48 at this point and she published her very first book it's a very famous book of hers called Conjoint Family Therapy, 1964. This was a revolutionary book in some ways. I mean, there had been publications about family therapy before, so it wasn't like this was brand new. But it was extremely popular. And it, it right there in the title, Conjoint Family Therapy, meaning that you you meet at conjointly. You meet it with you know family members in the room together. And in this book, I have this book, actually, in front of me right now, and um, it's, it's written entirely in outline form. It's a full book, and the entire book is, is, is a series of bullet points. You know, it, it'll be like, number five, and then she has like a, like a sentence or two sentences about this idea that she has, you know, families, blah, 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 da, 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 da. And then she has these bullet points underneath, and I can't tell you how much I love this style of writing because this is the way I think. Like when I I just published my book, uh, coincidentally at the exact same age as Virginia Satir when she published her first book uh, called Multi-Role Clinical Supervision. And while I was writing it, the first number of drafts, the first, I don't know, three or four drafts that I thought were final, by the way, it took me another, I don't know, literally 50 to 100 other drafts before I was actually done how naive I thought after the first three drafts that it would be done. But anyway, those early drafts were very satirian in that they had a lot of bullet points and a lot of outline kind of things because that's how I think. I think of things as idea and then support. Like right now, my notes are outline form. They, you know, I don't, when I, I, I hope, I mean, if, if you listen to this podcast, you know that a lot of times I'm working off my notes. Well, Right now, I'm, I'm on page five of 13 pages of notes, and it's all bullet points. And because I love bullet points because you can, you know, you can indent the bullet points based on what it is a subject under. 
right? So, you know, so you can have all these like embedded uh, levels of ideas within something. So um, her entire book is that. And I just have, and whenever I would show my early, the early drafts of my book to people, they would complain that it looked too much like an outline. And I just have to say now, you know, well, Virginia Satir did it first. So I should, <laughs> it, it was good feedback that I should actually just write out the book and um, the vast, everyone loved it much better after I did that. Anyway, so Conjoint Family Therapy, you know, a very popular book. I would say every family therapist has a copy of it, and it emphasized family therapy. It emphasized the importance of self-worth. Later, she would call that self-esteem. And it was also based on her courses that she developed at the Mental Research Institute. So as she's teaching, she's like, hmm, maybe I should just write a book about this. And it kind of reads like that. It reads like a curriculum. It reads like a PowerPoint that a teacher would follow as they teach a class. So Um, she would publish many other books after this, and all of them were well-received. She was asked to speak and teach all over the country at this point. So she kind of rocketed to fame in the 60s. And she, you know, this book came out and, uh, you know, suddenly she starts getting all this notoriety and people are asking her to come and teach. The thing I always point out when I'm talking about this history is like, like right now you are, you could be anywhere in the world right now listening to this podcast, right? Well, back in the day uh, with someone, if I lived back then and I wanted to teach people something or talk about something, I would actually have to travel to places and do trainings and have lectures in in lecture halls and stuff. Cuz you know, this is the 60s. They're not they're they're not necessarily filming things and and, and sending those f- films around, right? So so Virginia, that's what she did. I'm I'm positive today she would just have a podcast. <laughs> but back then, you know, they didn't have such things and so she traveled all over the country and in other countries talking about family therapy and her ideas of family therapy. And she became, by many people's accounts, the best spokesperson for family therapy that has ever lived. She's sort of like our Carl Sagan in some ways. She was the most clear and the most accessible of all the founders of family therapy. And, I mean, Mnuchin probably is up there too, but um, Satir just has a especially, I guess Mnuchin and Satir, that's why I call Mnuchin and Satir like the real parents for me in terms of family therapy. Anyway, her reputation grew from this point forward through the 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, just She just got bigger and bigger. And the things that she added to family therapy during this time were things having to do with emotions and self-esteem and connection and love and how therapists need to be nurturing. That that was really new. I also read somewhere that during this time, 60s, 70s, 80s, that there were posters made of things that she said and maybe with her face on it, I don't know. And agencies and therapy offices would actually buy these posters and, and put them up on the wall of the agency. And so I'm, I, and that just makes me laugh because there's nothing like that today. You know, no one has a a poster of Mnuchin 
saying something, right? It it it's it sort of what it tells me is that at this time, it was kind of like the way people look at rock stars, right? It's not uncommon for someone to buy a poster of a rock star or an actor that they like or a movie that they like, right? Well, I think there was so much hero worship at during this time that it's like, ooh, I want a poster of Virginia Satir and put it up on my wall. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know their attitude, but that's just kind of what it seems like to me. All right, skipping forward to 1970. She is 54 years old now, and she has left the Mental Research Institute after having been there for about eight years. Also, Don Jackson had died a year or two earlier, the, the, the main founder of MRI. And so that might have been a factor. Naj and Haley were, and Jay Haley were also at the Mental Research Institute, and they had left around this time as well to go to Philadelphia to start their clinic. You want to listen to my episode on Naj if you want to know more about that. Virginia Satir uh, at this time became the director of training at the Asalen Institute. I don't know how to pronounce this word. Asalen, Asalen, Asalen Institute. I think it's Asalen Institute. It's in uh, Big Sur, California, and it 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 was sort of a famous hippie, um, you know, sort of experimental therapy center of the world, and it, it survived until recently. Actually, it was uh, I think it was only recently shut down. Um, I don't know why. Maybe they just decided not to do it anymore. But anyway, um, she I think she had been dabbling there throughout the 60s. But then around 1970, she became the director of, of training there and was a full-time employee there. And it was a popular place for the human potential movement, which began in the 1950s and became popular um, in the late 60s, early 70s. For you young people, you probably have never heard of this human potential movement, but um, I, I'm a little too young for it myself. I'm 47. Older people, probably, definitely, pe- particularly people in California, remember the human potential movement. It's where a lot of humanistic therapy ideas kind of were associated with. There, there were things like encounter groups, if you've heard of that, that were happening at the Asalen Institute in Big Sur, California, where uh, Fritz Perls was there. And so so this is where she went. So she went from this kind of buttoned-up research institute, Palo Alto Mental Research Institute, and then she goes to this super experimental kind of out-there place where people are thinking about the mind-body connection and spirituality and doing things like ialogs, not dialogues, but ialogs in which you express yourself to each other just with your eyes. So you you dialogue with your eyes only. I mean, you know, a lot of this stuff we would associate with New Age or with, I don't know, just that kind of stuff. But back then it, it was it was brand new. You and you would have these encounter groups or what they call what they called T groups. And people would sit in a circle and and they would just be real, right? They, they, you know, people like Fritz Perls and and other therapists around this time, humanistic people, including Virginia Satir, would encourage these people to just fully express themselves. Um, you know, uh, if you can think of hippie culture, you know, that's what we're talking about. People might scream if they wanted to. People, you know, therapists would encourage people to connect 
with each other and and to connect with themselves. It's this is where a lot of the humanistic ideas came from, and the the early Gestalt sort of Fritz Perls version of Gestalt ideas came from. So Virginia Satir continued to be to do family therapy here, and she would also teach it. And it was here where she learned, I think, a lot of her experimental, experiential therapy ideas. Um, Many others taught at the Assailant Institute. Fritz Perls, as I said, was a major figure there. Carl Rogers, Rollo May, Gregory Bateson, Joseph Campbell, Spalding Gray apparently taught there, Um, Maslow, Artie Lang, B.F. Skinner. So a lot of the big names uh, did stints there where Satir was in charge of teaching. During this time in the 70s, she also founded what was called Beautiful People, which was a a network of some kind. It later became the International Human Learning Resources Network, but originally it was called Beautiful People, and it provided resources and support to mental health workers, and it also taught people how to connect with one another. So it it was, I'm guessing that she wanted her own brand to market or have control over in this human potential movement. And so she had this beautiful people organization. 1972, she publishes perhaps her her second most famous book called People Making. Uh, I'm not going to mention all the other books. Those are the only two books I'm going to mention. So mid-1970s, she's in her 50s at this point, her her work was extensively studied by the founders of NLP or neuro linguistic programming, Richard ba- uh, Bandler and John Grinder. They used Satir's model as one of the three fundamental models in NLP, and they also collaborated with Satir on a book. And I'm not sure how I feel about this. Uh, I have friends who actually work in NLP and actually will tell me that. They have uh, comp- they have um, that Bandler and Grinder have uh, a controversial past, <laughs> I guess. But um, so anyway, just a little notable bit of history there. 1977. I am now six years old, and she is 61 years old. She created the Avanta Network, which was later renamed the Virginia Satir Global Network. This was similar to the Beautiful People Network. It provided resources and support for mental health workers, and it also taught people how to connect with one another. One another. So it was her, her, you know, um, humanistic kind of organization. She became a part of a lot of different organizations, like on the International Family Therapy or, or Association. She was on the steering committee. She was a member of the advisory board for the National Council for Self Esteem, and. There were a lot of other kind of things she was involved in in the 70s. She, she was really huge during this time. And many of her famous videos were made during the 70s and early 80s. So she, she was perhaps at the height of her uh, fame at this time. Skipping forward to 1988, I am a junior in high school, and she is 72 years old. And she starts to experience stomach pains. 72. She was hospitalized and diagnosed with pancreatic cancer that had spread to her liver. And the physicians said they did not think that they could actually, uh, you know, get rid of the cancer. They could treat her with chemotherapy and other kinds of things, but they wouldn't be able to get rid of it completely. 
And so she decided to not engage in treatment. And so, you know, figuring that there wasn't any point in doing anything about it. And she figured she was going to die soon. And she wrote these words during this time. Quote, To all my friends, colleague, and family, sorry, to all my friends, colleagues, and family, I send you my love. Please support me in my passage to a new life. I have no other way to thank you than this. You have all played a significant part in my development of loving. As a result, my life has been rich and full, so I leave feeling very grateful, unquote. She died on September 10th, 1988. According to her wishes, she was cremated, and her remains were taken to Mount Crested Butte in Colorado. Skipping forward to 1995, I'm 24 years old, and I enter graduate school, and I learn about her, and I saw her videos as I talked about it, and at first was shocked, but then really loved it. Two years later, I graduated with my master's, age 26, and I started teaching at Antioch University, and I would teach her model, and I would show her videos. And I did so for 21 years until today, 2018, age 47. I finally got the time to do a deep dive on her after many people have asked me to do so. And here we are. All right. So what can we say about her career? She was one of a kind. I don't think anyone would disagree with that statement. She was one of a kind. And she was so nurturing. No one else is like her in this way. Carl Rogers comes close, but no one is. No one can come close to Virginia Satir and, and how nurturing, how how mothering, how maternal she was. She, if you if you've seen videos of her and the, the vibe she gives off, she just gives off the vibe of a very powerful grandmother, a grandmother who is confident and is competent and knows what's what, and is calm but firm. I mean, she she just has that vibe about her in every context that she's in, and, you know, one of a kind. She became one of the most famous names in family therapy, if not psychotherapy as a whole. Throughout her career, she developed her own model of therapy. She wrote several influential works. She provided probably thousands of workshops and trainings on family therapy. She established professional training groups all over the world, the Middle East, Asia, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, Central America, South America, Russia, etc. She probably worked with tens of thousands of families in her practice. You know, I was thinking about it as I was going over the history of her and history of family therapy. It's possible that she single-handedly created our field. We don't usually think of her that way. You know, we think of Gregory Bateson or Ackerman or Don Don Jackson, for that matter, Marie Bowen. But she was so popular and so loved and so prolific, prolific and so dogged in her promotion of her model and, and the general model of family therapy that you just have to wonder what our profession would have been like without her. You know, 
it's one thing to have a, a model of therapy called family therapy. It's a whole other thing to have me, who was a licensed marriage and family therapist. I mean, the governments of America and around the world have been lobbied and successfully to license a particular profession called marriage and family therapy. And we're separate from psychology and we're separate from counseling. We're separate from social work, separate from psychology, some psychiatry and, and psychiatric nursing in the medical field. We are our own profession with our own lobbyists and our own professional organization and our own training programs. And back then, it, you know, it, it wasn't that way. It very easily, our field could have become just, you know, subsumed in the general field. Like, you know, we don't have a profession called, um, you know, cognitive therapists, right? Cognitive, you know, the, the people who developed cognitive therapy are subsumed in all the other therapies. You know, there's no, you don't, you can't become a licensed cognitive therapist. So, why do we have licensed marriage and family therapists? Well, I think part of it is because of the popularity of Virginia Satir and those who flocked to her and were inspired by her and who felt empowered by her to establish our field. Now, you know, I don't have a finger on the pulse of history of family therapy, but it just you just have to wonder, you know. She influenced our field in a big way, I think, she was definitely the beacon of compassion and humanism and connection and love and being real. No other family therapist figure was really like that at the time. I mean, I love humanistic psychology and psychotherapy. I use it all the time. And to see Satir uh, influence family therapy in this way is just really great. Throughout her career, she won several awards and honors, including the the gold medal of outstanding and consistent service to mankind by the University of Chicago. She was awarded a number of honorary doctorates. In 1982, she was selected by the West German government as one of the 12 most influential leaders in the world today. <laughs> I mean, huh? It's just interesting. 1982, one of the 12 most influential influential leaders in the world by the West German government. 1987, she was named Honorary Member of the Czechoslovakian Medical Society. And around this time in the 80s, in two national surveys among mental health professionals, she was voted the most influential therapist of all time. So in the United States, again, there was a time. So she above Freud, above you know Jung, above Adler, above... Um, Kohut, above Bowen, above you know, above every other therapist in in at two particular years, she was voted the most influential therapist who had ever lived. That's amazing. That is just amazing. And I'm here to tell you that in some family therapy books, she is not discussed at length. She is she is kind of glanced over. And I think that that has to do, obviously, with sexism. And I think it also has to do with um, her. the way that she is was so different that I think it scares people, which I'll get into when I talk about her, her model. So again, as I said, this episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron yet of this, of this 
podcast, then this episode is going to end soon before the rest of this episode carries on. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. Just go there, create an account, and become a patron of our podcast, and you can become a patron of several other things as well. When you become a patron, you get access to hundreds of patron-exclusive episodes in which we do deep dives like this into various de- various different topics. And when you become a patron, you don't have to listen to the vast majority of commercials, which some of you do not like. And also, remember that a portion of your pledge goes towards various charities that we support, including Pet Finder Foundation, which we just made a $2,000 donation to from patron support. So do that now. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone people. Thanks for becoming a patron. That's super cool of you. All right. Let's get into Virginia Satir's model here. Her model is goes by it goes by many names. It is called Transformational Systemic Therapy. It's also called Satir Transformational Systemic Therapy or STST which sounds like something from Star Wars. It's also known as the Satir Growth Model. It's also called the Satir Method. And it's also called the Human Validation Process Model. (laughs) I'm just going to call it Satir's Model because that's what I'm going to do. It's categorized differently in different texts that I have on my shelf here. A lot of times it's called an experiential family therapy, like Carl Whitaker or Gestalt or EFT or Walter Kemper. It's also sometimes called a communication family therapy approach in the vein of Don Jackson, John Weakland, and Paul Watzlawick. But she actually categorized her own model as a process model. I'm not going to go into all the reasons why you have these different um, you know, categories. So, sometimes Satir is talked about in the same breath as Carl Whitaker, and sometimes Satir is in a league of her own, and sometimes she's not discussed at all, as I talked about earlier. Sometimes she's talked about as one of the Mental Research Institute figures. And so I think if I would say off the top is... She said a lot of things, and her theory, as with any humanistic influenced or or really firmly humanistic theory like Virginia Satir's, it's hard to lock down exactly what the theory is, because it's not like psychoanalysis or even something like gestalt or internal family systems or uh, psychodynamic or psychoanalysis. They're... The humanistic psychologies have the um, disadvantage of part of their credo their, and part of their um, the way that they talk about things is that it's sort of atheoretical and it has more to do with instinct and more to, more to do with like quote unquote being authentic and and sometimes they try to you know define those things but it's kind of hard to define you know and so. I think Satir's model suffers in this way. And as we talk, and actually doing this deep dive was great for me because for the very first time in my career, embarrassingly, I really tried to concretize her theory. You know, I, 
I really, I read a lot of things and I watched her videos and I thought about things I'd already sort of internalized about her. And I really tried to, okay, you know, let's really look at this and let's really try to describe what are we talking about here. And basically what I'll get into in a bit here is about half of what she holds true is basically right in the center of humanistic psychotherapy. So, and, you know, when you think about Maslow or you think about Yalom, you don't think about concrete theory, right? When you, when you think of the only one you can really think about having a concrete theory is Carl Rogers. And even him, it's not super concrete, or at least the way in which you end up describing it or having to describe it, it it's hard to describe because it doesn't lend itself to a kind of a mechanistic a description the way that behaviorism does or cognitivism does or even psychoanalysis you know because psychoanalysis you got you got the id and the ego and the superego and you have defense mechanisms you know you have these things that are easy to sort of write about and talk about whereas in humanistic psychotherapy such as Virginia Satir, it's it's just hard. So a lot of times so a lot of times it just gets categorized these weird ways because people just don't really know what to do with it plus Satir was teaching throughout her life and wrote many books, and she she never really landed on one particular massive theory. She she like I said earlier, she kind of rambled, <laughs> and I think that's good because I think that really reflects human nature. And I think anyone who listens to me long enough probably realizes I do the same thing. I I'm never going to step forward and say like this is the foundation of all human experience. It's just too hard to to do such a thing. If you really held me, you know, to it, I might say attachment or corrective experiences or something. I don't know. But I would never claim that I could stem all human experience to those things. It's just it's just not possible. Humans are too weird. Uh, culture obviously is a huge socialization. Anyway, so biology, temperament, um circumstance. Um so, you know, uh, I I repre- I appreciate Satir in this way, but I think that because she had that way of teaching and talking and and talked and wrote and spoke and did so many different things, it's just that often when I see Satir being taught, they will latch on to something concrete that she said. Because <laughs> she, she does, and I'll get into a little bit of it. There were a few things that she, she had, she had a few lists, you know, she had a few communication stances and a few like roles in the family that she defined. And so a lot of times when people are lecturing or they're trying to come up with like a test question on the national exam to test you about Virginia Satir, that's often what they will call upon because there were rare instances where she would actually like lock down a list of something, you know, in psychodynamic therapy, you, you you have a list of 40 different defense mechanisms that have been researched and talked about and written about and blah, blah, blah. And so if you talk about psychodynamic therapy, you have, yeah, you know, have a good list of a lot of different things. Again, you have the different phases of development and, uh, an attachment, you have different attachment styles, you know, when you're teaching it often, uh, quickly, it often gets reduced to these like things that can be listed on a PowerPoint. And I think that, uh, and it, that actually annoys me about, uh, teaching in general and psychotherapy, but particularly about Satir, because she was so much more than that. Uh, she, she was so much more than these tiny little lists 
that that you can pull out of her uh you know the the vastness of what she did so so this episode is really great for me and in, in that I could finally sort of figure out how to uh, how how to in my mind how to concretize her approach okay so what's the main thing the sort of topic sentence we could say if we did hold her model down to one statement it would be this that through therapy through family therapy we in we tr- we attempt to try to improve relationships and communication within the family structure by addressing people's actions by addressing their emotions and by addressing their perceptions so behaviors emotions and cognitions so it's a lot of different things but again the the main thing is is we're trying to improve relationships and improve communication. This is why sometimes it's referred to as a communication approach because it emphasized communication so heavily. Okay, so again, improve relationships, improve communication. Those are the main things. Okay, so the first category of her model that I, so this is this is my way of describing it, by the way. I just, I just want to say that. Um, so the first thing that I will, first category is what I'm just basically calling family systems. So I'm just going to number these. So this is the first one is, is number one is family systems ideas. And these ideas are basically probably came out of her work at the mental research Institute, because a lot of people, you know, Don Jackson, Jay Haley and uh, Naj, these other people, they all held these to be true as well. So, so they're not unique to her, and but she definitely adhered to them as well and helped to develop them, by the way, and then was the first person to teach them <laughs> of all time, which I didn't know until doing this deep dive. Uh, I mean, you know, it, it's how, as a, as a family therapist teacher myself, how have I never known that the very first family teacher was Virginia Satir? <laughs> or the very first, like, official teacher of some kind? Anyway, I'm sure there were other quote-unquote family teachers before that, family therapy teachers before that. Anyway, so number one, in her model is a, is a set of what I would call family systems ideas. Uh, for example, that problems that families bring to therapy, like... My kid is smoking pot or, um, you know, my husband is a drunk or something that we can't blame that on just one person, that everyone is participating in the in the problem. This is a very hard thing for trainees to wrap their mind around. We are socialized in our society so heavily to blame one person in a family for a problem. And we're we're and. You know, all you have to look at, all you have to do is look at the, our current political discourse to see how linear we are and how non-systems we are. People just, you know, um, the gun debate, for example, you know, you just see people on either side just targeting certain scapegoats. And we need to understand that there's a larger system at play here. And some people do understand that in the political discourse. But anyway... So when a family brings in a kid with a problem, then we need to understand that that the problem isn't the scapegoat's fault or what they call the identified patient's fault. 
that the problem is of the family. Now, that's a general statement that sometimes doesn't really hold hold true. If you have a psychopathic, sadistic person in one family, then you can't really blame the family for their behavior. But, but often it is uh, a useful way of looking at things. The idea goes is that that the problems that families bring in to therapy are usually superficial issues that are used to mask deeper problems. Like Johnny is smoking pot or the fact that everyone is focusing on Johnny smoking pot helps us to distract us from a deeper problem that our marriage is falling apart or something like that. Or Jenny is slowly dying from an eating disorder, but we don't know what to do about that. So we're just going to focus on Johnny's pot smoking. Also, another family systems idea that was shared among these people back then, um, and also also, uh, Satir, is that the mental health problems like depression or anxiety are often the product of negative family processes and experiences. Another thing that Satir and other MRI people believed in is that all behavior is communication. The phrase that I often talk about in class is you cannot not communicate, meaning that you're always communicating. So if you're very quiet and you're stone-faced, that, that's communicating something, right? And so so here's one of our lists. So when you know when people lecture about Satir, they often will reduce her entire theory to the following thing. It's just the communication stances, which she called placating, blaming, super reasonable, irrelevant, and congruent. So she she found that it, when she would work with families, people operated from one of these five communication stances, and she could, uh, you know, instantly or quickly assess that. And basically, the first four are dysfunctional, and the last so there's only one functional way of communicating, and that's what she called congruent, which is basically where you're being truthful, and you're you have the self esteem to be able to be truthful, and you also have the self esteem and the compassion for other people to care about other people's feelings. So congruent doesn't mean that you're just like quote unquote radically honest. It means that. Uh, To use another word in family therapy, you're differentiated enough to consider the other person's feelings. Um, So so congruency was the thing. She was always trying to help people to be congruent, which often amounted to Virginia Satir pushing people to be more honest. But she found these other four dysfunctional ways of communicating. One was placating, which, you know, is in the word. So people placating are – they're passive and very agreeable. So they're just placating, like, okay, okay, that's fine. I got it. I got it. And then another dysfunctional communication stance is blaming. So someone who blames, oppositional, angry. Another one is super reasonable. And this is being intellectual, being seemingly very competent, the, the over-functioner. Uh, this is uh, one of the communications. So, so sh- you know, we often in our culture would look at the super reasonable person, the intellectual person in the family. Often it's the father. And you would say like, oh my God, he's so differentiated. He's so intelligent. He's so not crazy. And look at everyone else in the family are crazy. Well, Virginia Satir would target that father and say like, you're being super reasonable. Like you're being overly reasonable. Surely you have emotions on, on inside of you. And 
the family depends on you to 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 you know express those emotions in a congruent way. You can't just constantly be intellectual all the time. That's just not possible. And and people around you are picking up on your emotions that you're suppressing. And they're getting this mixed message. You know, you're you're giving this very logical, computer like facade of a of a persona to everyone, but they know that deep down you actually have a lot of emotions. And so you need to be more congruent, pal. You need to start, you know, emoting. And uh, the last dysfunctional communication stance that she talked about was irrelevant. And this is when people are distracting. They communicate in a way that distracts through irrelevancy, you know. So so this is all in the family systems umbrella of things in her model. So these are all things that she held. Other things in the family systems side of things that problems arise when a marriage becomes stuck and parents turn to their children for validation and distraction. This is an, an MRI thing, but I think it's it's particularly a satirian thing. So she she often found when she would work with families that that you know um, there would be these enmeshed relationships or these kind of problematic relationships between say the father and the son or the mother and the daughter or something like that. And when she would look into it further, she would figure out oh, a long time ago. These parents, you know, they got married and they had some trouble communicating. Maybe it was sexual, maybe it was a fight, maybe, I don't know, who who knows what it was, but there was some kind of impasse that they ran into. And so the parents, they turned away from each other because they were hurt and they didn't trust each other. And what they did instead was they turned to the kids for validation and, and for distraction and for companionship or for just something to do, you know? You're a mother and you you feel like your your husband is a mile is you know ten thousand miles away, and so you're at home and well what else are you going to do well the kids are around so you focus on that and so and the kids sort of pick up on that and they they and the kids like oh my mom needs me and I need to sacrifice my childhood to be my mom's companion I mean this is just one example but Satira found that a lot of times what she was tasked with was really helping the parents to repair their marriage so that the parents would stop focusing on the kids. She also believed, as did a lot of family systems people at the time, that problems arise when parents are incongruent with their children, which models incongruent behavior to the kids and also sort of forces the kids to react to a mixed message. You know, like she was big on this, you know, this is the double bind stuff that came out of Bateson and, and all those other people and had to do with the early schizophrenia research. But, you know, when parents, parents, everyone in the family needs to be congruent, but particularly parents need to be congruent with their kids. So a lot of times what she would find, particularly back in, in her heyday, you know, a lot of the middle class families that she would work with, uh, suburban, a lot of white families, honestly, that you see in the videos anyway. Very Northern European, very uptight, very non, trying to be non-emotional. And so she would enter into these family sessions with people and, and the parents would be saying things to the kids like, you know, like, um, look, I just need you to do better in school or I just need you to stop using drugs, you know? But what Virginia would pick up on was there was a lot of emotion 
that was being communicated in this very subtle way by the parents to the children that was not congruent with what the state with what the parents were saying. So the parents might be saying, "Look, I'm not angry at you. I just really want you to to not use drugs." But deep down, the parent is extremely angry and extremely anxious about their child and resentful toward their children. And so Virginia Satir would be like, you got to let that out because the kids are picking up on that resentment that you have towards them, but it's driving them crazy because you're not talking about it. They, they just sort of detect it. And, it, and it, when, you, when you have this message that someone is tr- you know, verbally saying one thing, but their meta communication is saying something else, it, it drives people crazy. It's this double bind. It's this mixed message. And, and I hope I'm, I hope I'm describing that correctly. And I hope you understand. I hope, I don't hope you've been through it, but I'm sure you probably have. And I hope you can come up with an example because it really does drive you crazy. When, when people give you two different messages, you know, it, it, it's what people sometimes refer to as passive aggressive, but it's, it's, you know, kind of more than that in a lot of ways. And the the term passive aggressive gets thrown around to just flat out aggressive behavior. But anyway, um, so she detected a lot of that kind of communication in family, and and when she found it, she really tried. She really forcefully got people to, which I'll get into later in terms of her technique, to uh, be more honest with each other. Uh, she also held a very common family systems idea of the time that you need to treat the entire family. And you need to keep, you need to get people interacting and you need to look at the family roles and the rules and maybe change them. So everything so far is totally in line with the standard of family systems uh, during her time and today. She came up with those specific communication stances, but that's just kind of a minor part of the whole thing. So she held a lot of MRI, Palo Alto style, family, Jay Haley style kinds of, you know, Mnuchin actually style family therapy ideas. And I'm guessing that she really solidified those ideas when she was at the Mental Research Institute as the director of training during the 60s. Okay, the next category of ideas that she held is the second category, and I'm calling this the humanistic category. And I'm guessing that she absorbed these at the, um, what was that, the Asalen place in uh, Big Sur, California. And in the, in the mid-60s through the 70s, she, because she was around, you know, I, I, she's around Fritz Perls a lot during this time, one. She was at an institute that, uh, that and she became the director of training there, too, that was that was extremely emphasizing of humanistic ideas. Maslow, Rollo May, and all these people were there. I'm I'm guessing she interacted with them. She might have even trained them in family therapy. I don't know. Uh, And she really picked up on all of these ideas. So uh, this is the second sort of major category of things that uh, we could say that she held in her model. So, for example... She believed that all people possess the capacity for growth. Whenever I lecture on humanistic psychotherapy, I always say this is probably the one thing that holds them all together. Because the things that are included under the umbrella of humanistic psychotherapy are, you know, Maslow, Rogers, 
um, you know, as I, as I said, uh, you know, Irvin Yalom, even Satir, these are very different people with different approaches. But the one thing you can point to that they, I think, you know, in my estimation, they all hold is that all people possess the capacity for growth. It's ability that inside of everyone is the ability to grow and to learn and to heal. And that they don't need us as clinicians to heal them. They don't need us to give them some insight the way that a lot of therapy models held back then particularly and still do, right? The idea is that we, the idea that we have to teach our clients skills or something that humanistic psychotherapy is like, no, no, no. Everyone has the ability to heal themselves. Everyone has the ability to move towards uh, health the problem is, is that something happened in their life, either through their relationships, their childhood, through society, something has gotten in the way of their innate ability to move towards health. And so we have to figure out what that is as a clinician and try to target that and get rid of it. So, so this is a this is a thing that Virginia Satir absolutely held and was held within what I think to be most humanistic psychotherapies. You know, when you think about Carl Rogers, Carl Rogers never taught skills. What he thought was through unconditional positive regard and phenomenological listening, that given that space, people will figure things out for themselves. And so that's a very humanistic thing. It's about setting up a space for people to be free and you don't have to you don't have to push them in a particular direction. And this is very totally in line with what Satir did. When you and actually to some people this is very shocking and when I show videos sometimes to students they're like, "Oh my god, why isn't she saying anything?" Cuz like there's this one there's this one um just as an example. There's this one session, you can actually watch this on YouTube where I, I I don't know if I have the facts right, so um, I might be wrong in this, but I'm I'm pretty sure what's happening in this. I've watched the the session many times, so I'm just kind of doing this off memory. But from my memory, we have in the session this father with his two young kids who are like I don't know five or six years old, and the mother has been was was abusive or something to the kids in the family and has lost custody of the kids and and no longer can even visit have visitation with the kids or something like that and so the father um doesn't know what to do about that is just like well you know i don't know what to tell the kids you know that the the mother has been, has been kicked out of the house and Again, I don't know if I have these details right, but essentially that's what's happening. And so Virginia Satir basically engineers this father having a very, very upfront, honest you know, communication with the kids about the fact that the mother is no longer going to be able to see the kids anymore. And the Virginia Satir is just like, tell, you know, tell your kids, tell your kids. That Virginia Satir isn't telling him what to say, but is basically saying, Tell them what's on your mind, and the father. And so now the father is leaning in to the kids and saying, "Your mother was a bad person, and your mother did bad things, and so that's why she doesn't have. She's not going to be able to see you anymore." And the kids are like, "Well, why? Why can't I see my mom?" And the and the you know the dad looks at Virginia and Satir. Satir's like, 
tell them what's on your mind. And the father is like, well, you're not going to see her anymore because she was a bad person. She did bad things to you. And so that's why you're not going to see her anymore. This is a, and Virginia Satir is like a hundred percent on board with, with what's happening. Now to the uninitiated, what you're with some people, what they're, and I hope I'm describing this well enough. That what they see is like, wait, so you're just going to allow a father say those awful things to their kids? I mean, these kids are so young, and, and shouldn't you be comforting the kids a little bit more? I mean, their kids are terrified. Well, with humanistic therapies and with Virginia Satir, the idea is is to not tiptoe around those things, that you need to be honest, you need to be upfront, And later on, maybe some compassion and some caring and some coddling or something can happen. But what we need to do first is we need to have congruent communication up front. It needs to be honest and, and the, the father needs to communicate honestly. And sometimes that means there will be a time when people will say some pretty awful things to each other, but it's what is in the room anyway. People are detecting it. And so in order to not drive everyone crazy, it's better just to say it than to than to suppress it. And often by saying it, it it gives it the, the, you know eliminates its power. And by not saying it, it sustains its power. So Virginia Satir is not she doesn't care about you know worrying about what's communicated. It's like you need to whatever you're thinking, you need to start saying. It was a big, and that was a big, that's a big part of Carl Whitaker as well. And it's just a big part of Fritz Perls. Fritz Perls was all about that. You, you know, don't be a fake. Don't be a phony. Be real. Be here and now. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Satir was big. I was like, she'd just write someone say, what are you feeling right now? You know, what's, what's going on with you? And she would just turn to someone else. What's going on with you? And I have to say, like, this is how I do family. If, if someone watched me prob- probably at my best as a family therapist, I'm absolutely channeling Satir. And, and there are times when I absolutely feel like, ooh, this is Satir right now. <laughs> and when I uh, demonstrate family therapy to students, I often sort of default to a Satirian mode. I just find it to just be so interesting because it, it, it has this sort of dual level because on one level, you're – you're really trying to get the clients to express themselves and to be themselves and to say what's on their mind and to, and you're really trying to have everyone to have a real moment, you know, at the same time that you're really client focused, you're really like, tell me what's on your mind. How are you feeling? Where is that in your body? Say it to the other person. You know, you're really getting things going at the same time. As a therapist, you're actually doing a lot of things. You're really involved yourself. So, um, anyway, so Satir was a very was very humanistic. Again, she believed that everyone has the capacity for growth. She believed in the here and now. She wasn't focused on the past. This is also a family systems thing, but she was even more in the here and now than a lot of people, I would say, in a very humanistic psychotherapy way. She also believed in self esteem. And, she, you know, to, to some people, when you say the words, the phrase self-esteem, they think of Virginia Satir. Um, I think somehow she just made it famous. I don't think she invented the term. She might have. I don't know. But 
she she definitely was known for this idea of self-esteem, meaning that when you feel bad about yourself or you don't trust yourself or you don't feel like you can communicate things like sometimes self-esteem is it, today is is a synonym for like being stuck on yourself and egotistical and narcissistic or something. That wasn't what she was talking about. What she's more talking about is like self-worth or valuing your own feelings. Just being like, you know what? I have a feeling and I, and it deserves to, to be expressed. It deserves to be here. It doesn't, whereas people with low self-esteem in her parlance is someone who has been sort of beaten down and feels like they just don't matter and that they, they don't deserve to be heard. So, so she believed that when people have low self-esteem, that problems arise because people can't communicate to each other. And obviously people feel bad about themselves. She also believed that problems arise when people have too high expectations for each other. You know, when parents have too high expectations for their kids or when people don't trust each other to live their own lives. For example, in this category, she would say that if she, if she came upon a marriage that was having some trouble, she might discover that they had some conflict early in their marriage and felt really ashamed that the fact that they were fighting. And so what she would say is, oh, so you thought that pe- that married people don't fight that and you feel and you both felt really bad about yourself about that. And that's why you turned away from each other. Well, I'm here to tell you, everyone fights and you you had you had very unrealistic expectations for yourself. So let's let go of that and say that, you know what, let's embrace the fact that you guys get in fights sometimes. And and, you know, let's return to the marriage. Let's return to each other. Or, again, expecting a, a child to not be a child sometimes. Uh, this kind of thing. She was, as I've been saying, in terms of authenticity and congruence, she was very into authentic communication. And she was also into sort of a positive psychology, strength-based approach of pointing out strengths and hope. She, when, when you watch her operate, all the whole time, all she's doing is pointing out strengths. People say things and she'll just be like, oh, that's so, you know, you, I, can, I can really tell you, you really care about each other and that sort of thing. So, so again, that symptoms arise uh, when things happen that sort of cause people to develop coping mechanisms that don't really work all the time. Carl Whitaker was big on this too. Another humanistic idea that everyone is good and everyone has the capacity for growth is that everyone for the most part is operating from a good place that, you know, when you watch your spouse or your kids or your parents or some other person, really anybody that bothers you or hurts your feelings, there's a knee-jerk reaction to look at that person and be like, that person's an asshole. You know, you're driving down the road and someone cuts you off on the street or they flip you off or, some, you know, some kind of negative experience. We, we tend to look at those people, and this is a, this is a studied you know, psychological phenomenon. Um, we, when someone else makes, an, makes a mistake on the road, we tend to look at that as a, as a character flaw. Like, oh my God, that person is an asshole. They don't care about other people. But when you yourself make an error on the road, you think it was just a temporary mistake. You don't think, oh, I'm a flawed individual. 
what you think is, oh, well, I just made an innocent mistake or I wasn't paying attention close enough or, or I was distracted. or You have some excuse for why you did it. But people rarely do that for other people. You know, and why is that? Well, because one, we're narcissistic and two, it's hard to know, especially a stranger, what's going on in their mind. And in our society where we come into contact with so many strangers all the time, we just never are given a chance to really know what is going on in other people's minds. And for the vast majority of of the time, if not all the time, people are really trying their best. And I have a lot of fights and, or a lot of debates with other therapists about this around, you know, they'll be talking about a client and I'll just be like, well, the way you're talking about this person's spouse is as if the spouse is evil and and is purposely trying to be a dick or something. You know, why do you think that person is doing that? And they'll be like, well, I don't know. He, he's, he just refuses to listen to his wife and, you know, he just refuses to be, uh, be a good husband. And I'm like, well, but, Everyone comes from a good place, so why is he doing that? And they'll just look at me like, what possible good reason could there be for this person to be such an asshole? And I'm always like, well, that's up to you to figure it out. You know, I have had quote-unquote asshole clients who, when I get down to it, I'm like, there was, a, there was a reason for it. They're afraid of something. They've been socialized something. They're confused. They're, they're incredibly hurt, and this is their way of masking all of that. There's almost always some very logical reason. Now, it might not make sense, but, but uh, and sometimes you might be like, wow, that was, that's a convoluted like, conclusion that, that the person came to. But, you know, we're all just trying our best, and we're all just muddling through. And the vast majority of us are really trying to do good by other people. We're really trying to be moral and nice and and ethical and respectful. And when something gets in the way of that, it's usually because of something that happened to that person that was unfair to them. Either they were taught something wrong or they were abused in some way or they were tricked or they hurt or something. And if you can target that, then you can get at, um, you can sort of free that so that they, they're free to, to be more pleasing to other people. So anyway, this is all in the category of humanistic psychotherapy. So I hope you get that whole thing, you know, very humanistic, very positive to the individual here and now, um, you know, try to get rid of barriers, uh, very humanistic. Okay. So again, we had the family systems ideas and we had the humanistic ideas. Number three, we have the emotional ideas. And this is, uh, it's, you could absolutely have this in the humanistic psychotherapy idea, but not necessarily because there, there were humanistic people who weren't super into emotions. But Satir was. She believed that emotional suppression is a bad thing. This is very similar to Whitaker. That's, this is why she gets lumped in with Whitaker sometimes. She would often talk about how children are shamed for having their emotions. You know, she was a teacher. She was a, the eldest daughter of, of, you know, five kids. She, she observed a lot of treatment of children and, and had a lot of, and she used a lot of metaphors when she treated adults. Um, I just watched one video of her where she's talking with a woman and her parents, so a grown woman and her parents, and she had the grown woman get down on her knees and act like she was not act, but sort of like visually look like a child because she was short. And then she asked her about, you know, so she was very interested in the, the lessons we learn as children. And one of the things that a lot of 
uh, uh, mainstream Americans in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and even today, uh, learned was that having emotions are bad, and that we, as a result, overcompensate, overcompensate by pretty much denying our emotions later in life, some more than others. And she believed that in order to to really help people, we had to help people unstuck their emotions. We had to end the emotional suppression. And she also believed, in terms of this emotional category, that low self-esteem, so I don't know, I've already talked about low self-esteem, but you could also put low self-esteem in here. Um, She was also very concerned with family pain, grief and hurt and fear and which was often something she would find that would be suppressed in individuals and in families. And in her, in a, in her book, her very first book, Conjoint Family Therapy, she writes, she, she, was, she was like, you know, why should we do family therapy? And then she answers her own question, and, she's, and she says, because family therapy deals with family pain. You know, when someone's in pain, it, it affects everyone, and we need to help to heal that pain, and it's often through expression and through compassion among among the family members. She also had, uh, maybe I should put this, I'm going to actually edit my notes right now, and I put this in the humanist. She also had a existential uh, vein to her, which I would put under the humanistic side of things, um, in that she believed that everyone was responsible for their own behavior, this is a very existential thing, you know. Existential therapists were like, look, you have the freedom to choose your own life. And you need to embrace that freedom. And you need to realize that your life is yours. You have one life to live and you got to make it yours. And she wasn't like, um, you know, Viktor Frankl so much in this way, but but had a vein of this for sure. And she would talk about this. She's like, you got to get... She, she would talk to therapists as she's training me. And she's like, you got to get people and families to realize that they have the power to do things, you know, that they, they are responsible for their side of the issue and that they need to do, and, and everyone needs to play a role and no one can just sit in the background. And when she would treat families, there would, there would sometimes be someone who would try to avoid the family therapy session and sort of sit in the corner. And, you know, she would target that person and say, look, you're a part of this too, and you need to be a part of it. Um, and so the last category, so again, we have family systems ideas, we have humanistic ideas, we have emotional ideas, and then we have experiential ideas. And again, you could argue this is a humanistic thing, but not all humanistic people are experiential. This is, again, something she probably got while she was working with the humanistic people in, in Big Sur, in which she, she really wanted to get people to talk about the true emotions. She, she wanted connection. She wanted expression. She wanted realness. And she would get people up to do sculpting. And I do this in class with students, and I've done it with families too. Family sculpting, if you, if you don't know it, you so you would get a family together and you would take like the the identified patient as say the daughter uh, you know 17 year old daughter and she she's not doing well in school and she's smoking pot and she has a bad attitude and virginia satir would go up to her and she'd be like i want you to sculpt your family and i want you, so 
I want you to put your family members in these statue forms that represent how you feel about the family. And, you know, it might take a little bit of coaching, but, you know, so the daughter gets the dad to stand on a chair with his fist held up high as if he's aggressive. And then she would take the mom and put her in the corner with a bottle because the mother drinks. And then she put her younger brother um, playing a game, oblivious to everything. And then she would put herself in the middle of it, uh, kind of fighting back against her father. And so in this moment, this is a version, you know, sort of an element or a, uh, this has elements of experiential therapy. You're experiencing something. Now, to those of you who have, haven't done something like this, you're like, oh, okay, that's interesting. You're sort of sculpting something. But this almost always has a very visceral, bodily, emotional reaction in people when I do this with them. You know, I'll be talking with them about something. And, you know, so say this fictional family, I'm talking to the 17-year-old. It's like, well, how do you feel about your dad? How do you feel about your mom? There's a lot of intellectualizing. We, we learn early in life, again, through shame to suppress our emotions and to talk intellectually, to be very um, articulate and adult-like, so to speak. And, uh, what, and what Virginia Satir believed was, look, you got you to gotta get people out of that because that's, that's what's keeping them stuck. And so when you do these family sculpting things, you, so you go up, so after, you know, this, so I'm working with the daughter, I get it, you know, she sculpts the family and I, I ask her, how does it feel to, to look at where you are in this family right now? And she's looking up at her father that she has sculpted that's standing over her with this fist. And she's looking over at her mother who's completely avoiding through alcohol. And she's looking at her brother who's just completely oblivious and people break down crying. And sometimes it's not just a little bit of crying. Sometimes it is deep, deep crying. Or I'll turn to the mom and I'll say, how does it feel to be in the corner over here with this bottle? Again, just deep, like, a, you know, a torrent of, of emotion and crying. It is, whereas if I just talked to each person how they felt, they'd be like, oh, I don't know. You know, they're just very intellectual. Now, that's just one part of the sculpting. You can, you can do all sorts of things, you know, you can, and I do. I'll, I'll say, like, how would you like the family to be? Or I might turn to the mom and say, like, okay, how would you change the sculpture? Or, you know, just there's a lot of different things you can do. So that's the experiential part. You know, don't just sit around and talk. Experience. Uh, get people to communicate with each other. Um, she also used body work and meditation and breath work. She, she often asked people where they felt their emotion in their body. She might even touch the person, um, which I'll get into in terms of her touching. Okay, so again, those are my categories, family systems, general humanistic therapy notions, emotional ideas, and experiential ideas. Again, you could argue that um, three and four are basically humanistic ideas, but I broke those out. So as you can tell, I hope that the model is, you know, it's complex. And it's basically, in my view, an integration of family systems and humanistic psychology and in all of its different parts. And it can't be just reduced to a list of communication styles. Okay. 
So those are the general theoretical notions. How about just some more, and, and I've talked about technique a little bit so far, but let's talk about other kinds of technical things that I think Virginia Satir did and taught. Uh, one thing is, again, she used a lot of touch. So this is very unique to her. I don't know another therapist that touches their clients as much as she touches them. I mean, we're talking lots. And when I show the videos to students, there's a lot of gasping. In fact, every time I show a new class of Virginia video, I have to, I have to give them a caveat of like, so there's going to be a lot of touching <laughs> and, I, and I need you to, you know, put aside your notions of what is supposed to be good therapy because y- you might not be able to see past the touching and, and you might sort of judge a book by its cultural cover, so to speak. Particularly today, right? We just don't, we, 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 we have boundaries. We, we don't touch each other very much. And so there's just a lot of weird ideas. Now, I'm not saying that peop, you know, therapists should just willy-nilly touch their clients. But Satir pulled it off, as far as I can tell. And she did some intimate touching with people. Like, there, there are it, pretty much in all the major videos that I have watched of hers, past the first few minutes of the session, she's always touching someone. You know, she's holding someone's hand. She's rubbing someone's back. There's this one session where she's talking with this teenage girl, and she is asking her how she feels about her brother, who I think is a drug addict or who is, you know, addicted to heroin, I think. And Virginia asks the teenage girl, how do you feel about your brother, you know? And at some point, I think she expresses an emotion of fear or something. She's like, where do you feel that? She's like, well, I feel it in my stomach. And then Virginia, and this this girl, she's a developing woman. You know, I'll just put that in your head. You know, she she's a, a curvy teenage girl. And Virginia just reaches in and touches her stomach and holds her hand on her stomach. And this, this girl is sort of short. She's sort of hunched over. And she's pretty close to her private zones, her, her bikini zones, you know? And when I watch it, I, it seems to me like the kid, the teenager is fine with it. If not, if not really benefiting from it, when, when other people watch it, they're just like, Oh my God, what is that woman doing to that innocent little girl? So now I never do this as a therapist, I would, I, I don't, I don't even, I mean, if a client wants to hug me, I'll hug them, but I don't hug my clients. I don't, sometimes I shake their hands, but it's pretty rare that I'll touch a client. Um, I'm not against touching. I've done whole episodes on touching. I've, I've done several episodes on touching. Actually, I've done some on how bad it can get and how unethical and how exploitive it can get, exploitative it can get. But I've also done episodes on how you can do you can use touching in therapy and have it absolutely be helpful and healing and ethical as long as it's, you know, consented to and all this kind of stuff. Virginia Satir never asked for consent. She just reached out. In my estimation, she always made it work though, but you know, you can be the judge of that. She also, uh, she, she didn't always see the family members in every session, by the way. Some people confuse her and, and, uh, Naj and Bowen, well, not Bowen necessarily, but but there's this there's this false notion that 
all of the major family therapists would see everyone in this session all the time. Well, a lot of the famous filmed sessions are like that because they're famous films. So all the family members show up, I guess. But she didn't always do that. Sometimes she would meet with just the parents. Sometimes that just the kids, sometimes just the mom, whatever. You know, she, she, she mixed it up. Another big part of her, maybe I should create another category, actually, which I'm going to do right now while I'm on the fly, is positive psychology or brief. So she, so she had a lot of positive psychology um, elements, such as, um, and brief like collaborative therapies, you know, the quote-unquote postmoderns, in, in, in the way that she tried to instill hope with, in people, she was extremely strength-based, um, strengths-based, <laughs> making my notes here. Um, so so she, she really talked a lot about how it was the family therapist's job to instill hope because a lot of the families that came to her had lost hope and that they needed that. And I will attest to that. Um, one of the only things uh, I, I always... So, you know, I have a lot of trainees and supervisees and, and whenever they see their first couple, they always freak out because couples therapy is, is intimidating. You know, it's one thing to meet with a seven year old and play Legos. It's another thing to meet with two adults in a, in a very conflictual marriage and, and be tasked with trying to fix that. And one of the things I always say is make sure you instill hope, make sure you find and you assess and find where this family can improve and how, and you inspire them towards how they can become better. You know, imagine if you've ever gone to couples therapy, I'm guessing you felt this, but if you haven't, just imagine, you know, you you get, you you marry someone or you engage in a long-term relationship. And over time you start getting these really nasty fights and you do things that you're, you're not proud of. And, Things, you know, and every once in a while you're like, man, you know, I think maybe we should go to couples therapy. Well, people will do that for years before they actually go to couples therapy. So by the time they enter our offices, they, they're they pretty hopeless. Often they're like at their last sort of leg. They're like, well, if this doesn't work, I think we're going to get a divorce or break up or something. And they're incredibly ashamed. They're incredibly ashamed of it, particularly if they're married, right? And they come in and they're just like, I, you know, I'm not telling anyone about this because I'm just so ashamed of like how bad our marriage has gotten. We haven't had sex in like 10 years and, and I just so ashamed. The, and so it's up to you as a therapist to, to, you know, turn that around because it's never as bad as they think it is. So, uh, so she was big into that. Um, very, she was very clear that family therapists needed to, to do that. Um, she also was big into I statements. So this is kind of like the emotional side. So maybe I'll put that in the emotional side. So she was big into having people, you know, use I statements. I feel blank because blah, blah, blah. You know, if you're familiar. She also wanted to help families be able to interpret hostility correctly. She wanted to help um, others to be able to truly see each other and to ask for feedback from one another, be real, um, to be able to disagree with each other. She, she was really big on like, look, sometimes you're going to disagree and that's okay. It's okay to disagree. It, it's not the end of the world. Um, she 
really wanted people to know who they were therapists. She was very big on, look, you as a therapist, you need to do your own work and you need to heal and you need to uh, become congruent and authentic yourself. And only then will you become a, a good helper of other people. Um, but really, though, the last thing I'll say about her technique, and when you watch the videos, it's probably apparent, is that she did a lot of talking. She is dominating those sessions. <laughs> I mean, lots of intense talking. If you just, if you just timed, the, especially the, the filmed sessions that you can watch, if you just timed how much time she is talking versus how much time the client is talking, I'm guessing it's probably 20 to one, not just like half and half, which would be weird, you know, because most therapists, including myself, uh, the ratio is, um, you know, more more client talking than than, than me, you know, um, and when things are going really well, I'm barely talking at all. But in her sessions, man, she did a lot of talking. She, you know, I think it's her teaching side comes out of her where she just becomes like, like hyper directive. But on some way, she kind of pulls it off. But sometimes I'm watching her sessions and it seems like she's completely lost the clients and they're, they just kind of have this glazed look on their eye and they aren't really bought into the session because Virginia sits here as being so dominant. So it's just something to keep in mind. Um, she also moved people around a lot. This was similar to other family therapists to this, but I think she did it in this. She, again, she just did it like times 100. Because like Mnuchin might move people around in the seating arrangement. <clears throat> you know, she Mnuchin might move dad closer to daughter or something like that. But Satir, from minute one, she was she was moving people around. She was getting people up out of their chairs, standing around. She, you know, this one famous session, um, she gets the mom, and these are very conservative looking parents, by the way, and she, in the 70s, and she gets the mom uh, in between her son and her and her husband, and her, the son and the husband are pulling on, on, on her, the opposing arm, you know, to sort of give this visual representation of being pulled in two directions. And, um, you know, she, she just a lot of stuff like that. And it's pretty amazing to see. And I've done this too, and it can be very powerful to people. And the other thing is people don't forget it. You know, if you do some of the stuff that Virginia Satir does, uh, it's unforgettable as a client, I imagine. Okay, so that's the technique and the approach. I hope it all kind of makes sense to you. Now, you can become today trained in Satir's methods at the Satir Institute of the Pacific. There's level one training, which is a 10-day course. There's level two training, which is a 10-day residential course. There's level two, which is a seven-day residential intensive program, and level three, which or level two advanced, and then there's level three training, which is a 10-day residential intensive program. So if you want to learn in the ways of Satir, you can go to the Satir Institute of the, of the Pacific. And I have to tell you, I am tempted because not only would it be interesting and enhance my, my technique, but I'm guessing it probably would involve a lot of experiential um, kinds of training things that might be quite liberating to the therapist going through it. Okay, so let's end with the critiques of 
her method. Some people have a problem with the belief that people always do their best. You know, as I was saying earlier, uh, a lot of people have a problem with that. You know, it's like, wait, so that abusive father, you're going to say he was just doing his best. Um, so people would critique Satir for that. Um, people have critiqued her model as not being probably not being helpful for severe chronic mental health conditions such as schizophrenia. But I'm not sure she necessarily claimed that it helped schizophrenia. Some people critique it for not having much empirical evidence of its quote-unquote effectiveness. But if you've listened to my other episodes on um, evidence-based therapy, you know what my opinion is on that kind of stuff. It'd be really hard to prove effectiveness of any humanistic model, including Satir. It's just not manualizable. Um, But trust me, these things work. (laughs) That's all the evidence I need. I've seen it work. Um, Some people criticize Satir and her model as being too modern as opposed to postmodern in that Satir herself and the model basically proposes that the therapist can see an objective reality and sort of knows what's best. And the therapist doesn't necessarily recognize their part in the system. Also, some people have critiqued it or not sort of criticized it, but just noticed that it's not entirely systemic. It's not purely a systemic model and that she does have some linear notions such as bad parenting results in symptomatic children. That's a, that's a linear notion. I think a valid critique of her and really every model that came before the past, I don't know, 20 years, a critique of her model is that it didn't emphasize culture or marginalization enough. It, you know, it didn't, it didn't emphasize um, societal marginalization enough. But you, know, you could say that about probably every single model that that um, that came before 20 years ago. And, and really, you could, you could still say that the vast majority of therapists don't understand or, or um, incorporate that, that enough. She also talked a lot about right brain things, and recent neurological research has demonstrated that the whole left brain, right brain thing is not really a thing. She also talked a lot about what, this she called it life force and if it's just metaphorical it's fine but you know it's a very new age concept right of just like an actual physical life force that we have in us that she would try to unleash some people would have a problem with that and again uh some people have a big problem with how much she touches her clients but i would say that uh, if Satir were still with us today at the age of 102, she would say, yeah, you're right, and I've grown since then, and a lot of developments have happened in our field, and I've incorporated those things into my model. Um, so I, I, she was not one of those people that would poo-poo new things. I think she would absolutely have understood that. So I think, I think the critiques are kind of a product of her time. All right, I will end with a quote from Satir. Quote, I believe the greatest gift I can, I can conceive of having from anyone is to be seen, heard, understood, and touched by them. The greatest gift I can give 
is to see, hear, understand, and touch another person. When this is done, I feel contact has been made. Unquote. Well, that does it for that episode, that deep dive of psychology in Seattle. Let me know what you think. Let me know what you think of these deep dives I've been doing recently. You can email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. That's contact at psychologyinseattle.com. Please take care of yourself and be congruent and and allow yourself to be congruent and connect with others because you deserve it. (laughs) 